The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squawk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. And this week, Krako's back! Yay! I have returned. The frogs have somehow crawled back out of the pond and reassembled. <laughs> Auto frogs roll out. Uh, I missed you last week. It was really, really really awkward just sitting here by myself without just, just talking into into the, into the nothing yeah because there there there's no reaction so like you know they used to stream and you would have chat reacting and you know in the podcast i have you reacting and then i was just sitting and, and here the cats were just not cooperating okay i was home alone chris was off doing something with one of his friends the cats were all downstairs, so I was literally in a room by myself staring at a screen, and I was like, this is just... This I mean, even if they were in the room, I don't know if they would have put get, given much input, so... I don't know, marriage. You could try interviewing one of them. Did you have a nice trip? I did. Got, I got lots of photos with my fancy new camera, getting that tested out for possible podcast usage in the future. Yay! Things to add to the website awesome yeah so you i guess we could let's, let's chit chat a little bit more you went to raleigh north carolina right i did yes i went to see uh blue october they were opening for the goo goo dolls for their summer tour Ooh, how was it it was nice uh, the venue was uh, an outdoor place uh the red hat amphitheater it's actually really nice nice well i'm glad you had fun even though you abandoned me, it's fine. It's, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Abandoned, escaped, you know, <laughs> words. All right. So anyway, yes, next week, Krakow will be having a story. It's going to be interesting as usual. But yeah, this week, possibly a spooky one. Ooh, spooky. Well, we are rolling into spooky times. We are. Yeah, next week will be September, which is the pre-spooby month. These are real cracko hours. <laughs> Actually, next week will be we will be recording the day after my birthday. Hey. Hey. Tonight. We or today or this afternoon, this evening, whenever you are listening, uh, we will be talking This year? About, yeah. Uh, we will be talking about H.H. Holmes. Now, do you know anything about H.H. Holmes at all? Probably will once we get into it. Like uh, The name sounds familiar, but I can't exactly remember what he did. He did things. He did some stuff. I'm assuming stuff. those things were not good. Oh, you know what? It involved uh, rainbows, some sunshine, um, maybe some flowers and like little butterflies. And it's, it's, really, it's really good. Wonderful. Sounds like a fun story, you know, just like fun bedtime story for the kids. Oh, yeah. 
And I will say a huge thank you to our lovely friend slash researcher, Allie Beth. She uh, put together uh, all of this information. She has a huge passion for historical true crime. And our story is going to start here in Chicago of 1893. You strapped in to go in the way back machine? Yes, I'm ready. Yeah. Pull the lever, Kronk. <laughs> Wrong lever! Uh, all right, so it was 1893, and it was the Chicago World's Fair to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the Caribbean. Now, there was a huge battle of what city would get to the World's Fair, and it kind of came down between New York City and Chicago. And Chicago won. They, they, it was like a big, huge thing. Huge, huge thing. Interesting. So, at the time, electricity was huge. Uh, they had it all throughout the fair. They were showcasing the fluorescent light bulb. And a lot of people who came to the fair were able to ride the very first Ferris wheel. And they were able to try new foods, new products that would go on to become everyday staples. But at the time, it was mind blowing. It was it was crazy. The now most people would probably use a time machine for like evil or something like that, but or to like get money or whatever. No, no, I just want to go back in time and like show people from back then things we have today. I want to just like go into like a mid eighteen hundreds house and pull out an Xbox One. <laughs> Just show up with some, like, Jiffy Pop. <laughs> you guys are not going to believe this. I got these things. These are called Moon Pies. I have one for everyone. And this is a Peppa Pig PP06 Flip and Learn phone. <laughs> <laughs> so when I... So recently, Krakow got a new phone. And when I asked you what you got, I was, I was prepared prepared to have you say the Peppa Pig PPO6 flip and learn phone not See, the actual sometimes model. Sometimes I give serious answers and I don't think about the meme answer until later. <laughs> it just depends on which frog is in charge that day. Fair, fair. I mean there are 75 of you in a trench Yes. Here. We all take turns. All it's right. a rotating shift. So this World's Fair was four times the size of the previous one in Paris, and Chicago went all out. They were recovering from both the economic and social downturn that resulted from the Great Chicago Fire two decades before, so that would have been in the 1870s. The fair itself was spread out over 600 acres and included 200 different buildings. It was estimated that as many as 27 million people flocked to the fair between May and October. So it was only for five months, six months. Because May is like 5, October is 10. So yeah, 5, 6 months, 27 million people. And of that's, course... That's a lot of people. 
Yeah, of course. Uh, Chicago took advantage of this to set up hotels, lodging. They were going to cash in on all of these tourists and travelers. Many, you know, came and went with no issue. They just visited and left like a typical traveler. But there were some people who stayed at the castle on 63rd and Wallace, and they were rarely ever seen leaving. I feel like that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. The building was very unassuming. On the first floor was a drugstore, and then the second floor and third floor had lodgings and living spaces. But this building would soon become known by another name. The Murder Castle. And Lovely. its owner, Dr. Henry H. Holmes. We will go back to the beginning. And Herman Mudgett was born in Gilmantown, New Hampshire on May 16, 1861. He would later go by many other names, but Herman eventually would become known as H.H. Holmes. Young Holmes was raised in a very strict household, and he was often regarded as a really strange kid. He was bullied at school because of, quote-unquote, his odd demeanor. I don't know exactly what that means, but he acted weird. And he had really good grades, so... That's you know what's kind of scary is it um I've heard many people describe me as that good grades odd demeanor just just, just that, that, that weird kid over there in I the mean, corner same I mean who hasn't fair but that's one of the things that just doesn't change over time like this was the late 1800s and yeah. the smart kid who acts a little weird got bullied surprise at home, his father was a very harsh disciplinary. He, quote-unquote, did not spare the rod, which, you know, beat the kid, and would isolate Holmes and his siblings in their rooms and deny them food. Some report that's, that that's he... That's a little far. Uh, it gets worse. Um, there were some reports that he would douse rags in kerosene and hold them over the children's mouths to keep them quiet. Here you go, Timmy. You don't want to go to bed? Here's some some cough syrup. Just down the whole bottle, you'll be fine. I would rather have cough syrup than a kerosene rag shoved in my face. Fair. Yeah, kerosene. I don't like One is grape flavor, the other is kerosene. (laughs) During his formative years... Holmes took refuge in the forest where he began to catch and dissect animals. Now, part of the triad of most serial killers is fire, harming animals, and bedwetting. I'm not sure if he had any of the other two, but he did harm animals and he dissected them. And then later in his confession, he shares the story of one time that helped him face his fear of death and sparked his interest in human anatomy. There was a doctor's office on his way home from school, and he often expressed how scared he was of the office because there was a skeleton there. One day, some of the bullies forced him into the office and they made him touch and stare at the skeleton. 
Initially, he was absolutely terrified, but the longer he stared, the more fascinated he became. Don't know when he actually started killing humans. However, there are some stories in the Gilmantown area that indicated he might have started at a young age. Even as a small child, he was very reclusive. He kept to himself, but he had a friend, Tom, and they spent a lot of time together. When he was 11, Holmes and Todd, uh, Holmes and Tom explored an abandoned house in the area. And during the exploration, Tom fell from the landing and died. Witnessing that, you know, his best friend died would have been bad enough for anybody, but many people believe that Holmes pushed him. There just wasn't uh, I mean, proof. Bro, bro, why though? There's so many questions. If you're obsessed with death and killing, um, you know, someone who would go on to become a serial killer is... Probably you know, would just be like, I wonder what would happen if, you know, I just, you know, push. Additionally, there were rumors that Holmes may have killed two of his cousins. Both of them drowned, and Holmes was the only person with them when it happened. Records are not very clear whether these actually happened if you know cousins died at a young age because it was the late 1800s records were not very clear but there have been a lot of odd examples of children dying through the years while Holmes was living in that town so you kind of maybe could connect uh, a little suspicious yeah, so basically um, in, in today's lingo we would say uh, Mr. Holmes is sus so on the show American Ripper, investigators found unusual child deaths listed without a specific cause of death. And most of these were accusations that were steeped in a lot of local folklore, but some of them believe that Holmes started murdering as a child. It just was never confessed and it was never proven. Fast forward a little bit to 1878. And Holmes marries a woman named Clara Levering. He was 19 years old, so he was wrapping up his high school education and he had aspirations to attend medical school so he could continue exploring human anatomy. Holmes and Clara had a son together, but Holmes was very, very distant. It's something that people attribute to the emotional distance that Holmes experienced from his father. It's more likely that Holmes married Clara for her money and didn't actually care about them. There's there's a lot of things wrong with, with this man. I, I don't think I don't think I needed to say that. It's kind of obvious at this point, but you know Yeah. Well, you know, he was abused and bullied as a child. So when you already have a predisposition to be a a divergent personality, I guess, would be a word for it. Yeah, he kind of like all he's known growing up, so yeah. he's kind of used to it. It's like, this is normal. Yeah, so like, being abused, being bullied doesn't make you a serial killer, but if you already have certain qualities, and you add them all up and shake them in a bag, it, it ends badly for people. Especially back in a time when, you know, mental health wasn't cared for. People didn't understand it at all. Uh, Holmes left his wife and child behind and went to a small medical college in Vermont. 
he used his wife's money throughout his education to pay for his tuition and expenses. However, he very rarely came home to see his wife, his child, and then eventually just completely ghosted her. First, re- History's first recorded event of ghosting. <laughs> so then he enrolled in the larger University of Michigan Medical School, where they had lots of cadavers. The larger the medical school, the more access you will have to dead bodies. It was noted that while he was highly intelligent, he was a mediocre student. He, I know this actually is kind of a common phenomenon where you could be so smart that school bores you. That you just don't apply yourself because meh, you don't care. Even though yeah. you could very well excel. However, when it came to dissecting cadavers... Guess who did a great job? Guess who got that gold star? Holmes was a good noodle? He was a good dissecting noodle. About the only good thing he was, possibly. Well, at the same time, he began his criminal career as a fraudster and a grave robber. Medical schools needed... Yeah. Medical schools needed cadavers to teach surgery, anatomy... Other procedures, obviously, you can't know how to operate on someone without knowing where the bones and the musculature and the organs all are. However, many uh, didn't like the use of dead bodies for these things. So there were a lot of measures in place that limited access to the bodies that could be used for medical science. Nowadays, it's a lot different. You can sign a form, you're an organ donor, or actually sign up to be part of different things like the body farm or whatever. But back then, it was a lot different. So, grave robbing became a very lucrative enterprise. Grave robbers would watch for new burials, dig them up, and sell them to medical schools. Evidence suggests that Holmes began grave robbing on the side to provide himself with cadavers to work on and to earn money, but he he like massively denied this. He was like, no, I won't do that. You know, I, I feel like someone should would have noticed that, possibly. You know, you're just out there, you know, working on, like, filling in the grave and everything, and it's just like, you see that group of people standing over there just, you know, eyeing this grave? Should we be concerned about that? No, I'm sure it's fine. See that guy in the tree with the binoculars? You see the guy down there hiding behind the tree poorly with the shovel? Um... (laughs) At the same time, he also started committing insurance fraud. Of course. Of course he did. Oh, he would take out insurance policies for fictitious people. (laughs) And then he would take a cadaver that he grave robbed... (laughs) And disguise the body's identity somehow, whether, uh, I guess, you know, fire or, you know, hacking them up or whatever, and then claim that they were the insurer. He did this throughout his entire medical school career, and sometimes he brought others in on the scam. This is also when he started 
all of the different aliases. So, um, I'm assuming that the ways that he would disguise the body's identity, because, like, back then, I don't think their fingerprint technology and the dental records and stuff like that was like like they are today. Yeah. So, like, it was probably so, very easy to do that back then. Yes. Uh, last week, I talked about the Cleveland Corso murders, which took place in the 1930s. And at that time, which would be 40 years after the World's Fair and 60 years after he was in medical school, they only had fingerprints for criminals. So if you got arrested, they would fingerprint you. It was still a fairly new technology. So back in the late 1800s, that wouldn't be around except possibly for a criminal. Um, when it came to dental records, it would be if you had something very, very unique. You know, extremely crooked teeth that, you know, are not like Yeah, no, you couldn't just go by fillings and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So something very, very obviously different. Whereas nowadays they can, you know, match up pretty much everything in your mouth. Um, I don't know if you've ever had one of those. Have you ever had one of those x-rays where you just stand there and a thing spins around your head? Oh, yeah. Those are just so cool. Stand into the VR machine. (laughs) So in 1884... Holmes took and passed his exams and officially became a doctor. He moved to Chicago, and this is when he started going by the name Dr. Henry H. Holmes. Soon after arriving in Chicago, he started working at a drugstore as a pharmacist. And he soon took over the drugstore. There are theories that he killed the couple who owned the store and fraudulently, fraudulently, that was a mouthful, obtained property ownership. He continued to obtain properties all over the city through fraudulent means. So, so like, it, it, the, the dude did insurance fraud with dead bodies. Like, I don't think it's, like, much harder to, you know fraudulently obtained property. Yeah. So, yeah, he would take out loans for investments and then never pay them back. He was also a swindler. I like that word. It's a nice word. But he would use all these different aliases to just milk people for money. He would just take their money, take their money, take their money. It's not known if he stayed in Chicago this whole time. However, in 1889, he obtained an empty lot and began building his own drugstore and hotel, which would later become known as the Murder Castle. The building itself spanned an entire city block. So, for anybody who does not know, a standard city block is one-tenth of a mile. So this was a square tenth of a mile. This is oddly specific for a building that this man wanted. Mm. Oh, it gets... It gets weirder. 
So he bought the lot in 1889, and over the next few years, he started drawing up plans for originally a two-story building, but then it expanded to three stories. He would hire crews to build for a bit of time and then just abruptly fire them and hire another team. And then this revolving door of workers kept anyone from realizing what was going on with this building. The first floor was pretty normal. There was storefront property area. Uh, it was the pharmacy. You know, people would come in and shop. The second floor would eventually become the hotel. However, this is where things started to get strange. The hallways and the corridors were very maze-like. There were stairwells that led nowhere. There were rooms that had multiple doors, and some of them like you opened it up and it was a brick wall behind it. It was just a door there. That sounds like another story that we've got to research and talk about sometime. The Winchester Mystery House. Yeah. yeah. Doors that don't go anywhere. Stairs that don't go anywhere. But also I'm curious like this this is an entire city block. Like did the entire city block the lower floor was that just still the pharmacy for the whole city block? How big was this pharmacy? Storefronts. So I think it was a couple different stores, but uh, mostly like originally it started out as a pharmacy. It could have been like, I mean, imagine like a big CVS or. Um, I don't know about you. I don't think I've ever seen a CVS or a Walgreens. that took up like a whole tenth of a mile city block. Have you ever been to New York City? No, I was in a CVS with an escalator. Fair. <laughs> But yeah, it is very, very large. Now, it also could have been um, storefront, stockroom, all that stuff, too. Not yeah. just entire store. Stock warehouse. Stock warehouse. Additionally, in the second floor, hidden in the walls were peepholes and trapdoors were in the floors that led to chutes down to the basement, like a laundry chute larger it was claimed that Holmes lived on the third floor and rented out the rooms on the second floor to those who needed extended lodging the rooms were lined with asbestos and had pipes that would pump gas into them all controlled from Holmes office the basement I can't believe I'm going to say this after explaining the second floor the basement was the most disturbing part of the building. <laughs> Wonderful, it gets better. <laughs> so those chutes would lead down to the basement. There were uh, eventually vats of acid, as well as large quantities of quicklime. By the time that the World's Fair made its debut in 1893, the castle was open and prepared for visitors. We don't actually have a number or details of exactly how many people H.H. Holmes killed. We also don't know when he started killing. Like I said, it could have been when he was a child. 
there are nine official deaths attributed to him. In his confession, he admitted to 21, but later it skyrocketed to 130. That's two very different numbers. Yes. Yes. Uh, one of the issues with the latter number is he does not name all of his victims. He uh, doesn't he never really talked about his quote unquote first murder. Um, you know, was it, was it when he was a child? Was it somebody else? You know, what, where, when, how, who, all that, nobody knows, but he does in his confession, start talking about his second murder. Some of the people that he claimed to have murdered, they were found still alive. <laughs> So then people started to think maybe he just wanted to pad his body count to sell his story because he did release his his story. He he released a manuscript. But Is this on like uh, Amazon Kindle or like something like that? I, um actually Ali had sent me something. I think there is a free thing online. Um it is technically his confession. And it is a book, and there is a PDF that I can. Um, I was originally joking, but then after I said it, I was like, you know what? There probably is actually a book out there of this. Yeah, there you can get it for free online. His entire confession. Yeah. Now there is strong evidence to suggest that some of his victims may have been specific people, and there are coinciding evidence and all that to go with it. Many point to Julia and Pearl Connor as his first official victims. Again, may have been in his childhood, but his first official ones that were confessed to and verified uh, were Julia and Pearl Connor. Sometime in 1890-1891, Julia and her husband moved into one of the rooms that Holmes was renting out. They also had their young daughter, Pearl. Julia started doing bookkeeping for Holmes, and the two soon started an affair. Upon learning of his wife's infidelity, Julia's husband left, and it left his wife and his daughter living at the castle. Julia lived there until they both disappeared sometime in 1891. There is a theory that he may have killed her because she was such a good bookkeeper and she picked up on the discrepancies from his so fraud see, and scams. See, this is why if you, when you do a job for someone like this, you do it well enough to keep your job, but don't do it so well that if they're, you know, committing fraud that you'll pick up on it and they'll know that and they'll get rid of you. So, yeah, only half do it. Yeah, only have to. Holmes claimed that she died of complications from an abortion. In 1892, Holmes murdered Amelie Sagrant, and he did have accomplices this time. Benjamin Petizel being one of them of note. Petizel told Holmes about Amelie and convinced her to come work for Holmes in Chicago. She started to work as his stenographer but soon became his fiance. 
after the day they were supposed to get married, Holmes strangled her. That's that's an interesting wedding gift, but all right. A lot of people think it was to claim some sort of insurance because she was from a wealthy family. When her father reached out, because she hadn't he hadn't heard from her, and I know it's it's the late 1800s, so it's not like nowadays where you have a cell phone and you can call all the time. But he hadn't heard from her for a while, so he. He reaches out and Holmes said that she left him for another man and was now Mrs. Phelps. He more she did. (laughs) She did. Mm -hmm. He more or less admits to killing her in his confession, but it's inconsistent because he also claimed that she died of a botched abortion. So man, you got to get your story straight. Like it, it can't all be complications now. Like you, you got to stick with your story. Yeah. So you got to get your story straight. Cause first she leaves him for another man. Turns out she was strangled. He had an accomplice and yet she had a botched abortion that killed her. Touch on what you said earlier about, um, him claiming he had killed like 130 people. Some of the people he named were actually alive. Can you imagine just like a police officer coming to your door and being like, so you're you're this person, right? And you're like, yes. Well, this, this man claims to have murdered you. So we were just checking. I mean, I'd be happy that he didn't. <laughs> You'd be happy that he didn't, but would you also be flattered that like he brought your name up? It's like, oh, he wanted to kill me. Oh, I was his type. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's something you should be happy about now that I think about it. He did have another accomplice, which was a man named Quinlan, who was a caretaker and often helped Holmes with the disposal and cleanup after his escapades. It was said that the day after Ameline was last seen, the two men were seen carrying out a very large trunk. Wonder what was inside. I probably um, quote Mrs. Phelps. Minnie and Nanny Williams came from Fort Worth, Texas to stay at the hotel. They were from an affluent family and they, Minnie had a property that had been left to her in an inheritance. Some sources say that Holmes married Minnie. Now, I'm going to remind you of something. He's married with a kid. This man committed insurance fraud with dead bodies and stole property from some people. You think he cares? He illegally married, and uh, that's another reason he may have also killed Amelie, is because he was already married and illegally couldn't. But they say that he illegally married Minnie and obtained the rights to the land that way. Other sources say that he drew up a fake deed and claimed that Minnie sold him the property. Not sure which one it is, because we know he likes to commit fraud. But the women arrived in 1893, and after a bit, were never seen again. Belongings and bones attributed to Ameline, Minnie, Nanny, and Pearl were later found in the furnace in the basement. How lovely. Well, to make it even better, there were more remains that were never identified. Oh, great. So it might be higher than that 20, but not quite the 130. 
So basically what he said was, uh, so I killed n at least 20, but not more than 130. Yeah, something. Yeah, that's, yeah. You gotta guess. Have fun. I don't like that at all. No, not at all. Reportedly, Holmes would make employees, lodgers, and his potential wives take out life insurance policies. He would pay the premiums as long as they made sure to keep him as the sole beneficiary. What it's hotel believed. do you go to and they're just like, hey, if you're staying at our hotel, you want to fill out this life insurance policy and make us the beneficiary? Yeah. Like, how does that not throw up a red flag and you're just like, I'm going to head out and find another hotel. I'll sleep on the street, but not here. Yeah. He not only attracted people to the murder castle by offering lodging as a hotel, but he also advertised for employees because it was a business, both the downstairs storefronts and the hotel obviously needs employees. And he also advertised for women interested in potentially marrying him. There's an ad you don't see in the newspaper every day. Mm-hmm. His victims were asphyxiated by gases pumped into their rooms. Some were poisoned, some were strangled, and all of them were subjected to horrible things. In the basement, there was evidence that he would dissect and perform experiments on the bodies before dismembering them and either burning them, dissolving them in acid, or burying them in the quicklime. How lovely. They just This hotel just sounds you know, like the best place ever. Five stars on Yelp. Yeah, I, uh, I'm pretty sure if I saw a place called the Murder Castle, I would not be sent. I mean, something tells me that he didn't have, you know, a big neon sign outside that said, come stay at the murder castle. Well, it was called just the castle. His downfall was not due to his love of murder, but rather his love of fraud. By the end of 1893, the creditors were closing in and there was an astounding 60 different lawsuits filed against him by people who had been defrauded by Holmes. It's always something dumb that gets them caught, isn't it? He made a big mistake when he tried to burn the third floor of the castle and make an insurance claim. The insurance company saw right through it and began looking even further into his dealings. He was arrested for insurance fraud, but released. And that being said, he was not off the hook. He was just released. He knew that if they poked around the building too much, they would find out what he had been up to. So he took his business partner, Benjamin Petizel, and the two of them went on the run. First, they went to Denver, where they continued committing fraud. You know, let's continue doing the thing that we got caught for in the first place and the reason that we are on the run. You know, let's keep doing that. Because <laughs> it worked, you know? Yeah, yeah. Holmes married Georgiana York in 1894, and then Petizel and Holmes split up. Petizel went to Fort Worth and set everything up for the land that Holmes had stolen from Minnie Williams. He also went to Philly, where he opened a fake patent office. 
I can't say that with a straight face. This this, <laughs> this man is built different and not in the good way. Like what? Yeah, and he started the process for another insurance scheme that the two of them had devised. All once, right then. Yeah. Once Petitzel settled the land ownership in Fort Worth. Holmes and his new wife headed that way and made plans to build a home on the property. For Holmes, this was going to be the castle number two. However, Holmes stole some horses and tried to sell them in St. Louis and got caught, <laughs> which ruined his plans for his second murder castle. At what point do you just realize that you need to stop? Apparently never. So he was caught. Clearly. He was put in jail. And while in jail, he met a man named Marion Hedgepeth. He then let Hedgepeth in on the little life insurance scheme that he was running with Petizel. He tells him that when they go through with the plan, he would have part of the $10,000 if, if Hedgepeth could help him find a good attorney. Holmes got out of jail, joined Petitzel in Philly, and then they moved forward with the plan. However, soon after getting to Philly, Holmes murders Petitzel. <laughs> like, like, of course, of course. I, it, I don't. It's so, it's so outlandish. Like this, it sounds like a movie. It really does. And apparently, he had been planning that all along. There's a downside, or an issue, or a little problem Benjamin's wife was aware of the insurance scheme Holmes goes to Mrs. Petizel and tells her that her husband's fine the plan is set into motion and he convinces her to let him take three of their five children with him under the ruse that he was going to take them to be with their father he takes the kids to Toronto where he murdered them and it's thought that he intended to kill the entire family to hide his tracks. And those three were just the first step of the process. At this time... Also, um, yeah. I, I would like to just throw in here because I was curious. Um, this was in like 1894, right? Mm-hmm. I, I threw some numbers into a calculator and... Um, I, the, the calculator doesn't go back all the way to the 1800s, but the furthest I can go back is 1990. If you had $10,000 in 1990, today you would have $22,668.40. Imagine what it was worth back then. Oh. Okay, never mind. Your calculator's better than mine. Fair enough. $350,000? Yeah, there you go. It's always interesting whenever they throw out dollar amounts. Like, I know it's a big difference. That's a lot more money back in that time than it is now. I'm just curious as to how much of a difference it is. It's a big one. A lot. So at this point in time, Hedgepeth has not heard from Holmes and realizes he's been duped. So he tells the authorities all about the insurance fraud plot. And with that, the authorities are back on his trail. They start to close in on Holmes. The Pinkerton detectives manage to find and arrest him in Boston in November of 1894. There was evidence suggesting that Holmes was planning to flee the country with his third wife. 
So back in Chicago, the police searched the castle in July of 1895 concerning the fraud case and the Patizel murders when the full extent of Holmes's treachery was revealed. The strange layout of the castle led them to search the basement. And that's where they found belongings and remains of at least six people. They could attribute some to the missing women, but since most of the remains were burned, there was no way to be entirely sure. Before the murders were publicly known about, Holmes was already being called the arch fiend in newspapers as they tracked the case of the fraud and the kidnapping. So when the media found out about the infamous murder castle, they went crazy. Holmes was brought you, to Philip. Um, hmm? Can you imagine whenever the police were searching this place, they're like, uh, you know, I don't think these walls are supposed to have these pipes in them like this. Like these aren't your regular everyday pipes. Um, something right here. Well, I mean, I've watched uh, documentaries and things about uh, Gacy because, you know, he was very unassuming and then they just, you know, they found a body and they found another body and they found another and they found another and it was traumatizing. So that was in the 70s when we knew a lot more about crime and psychology and all that stuff. In the late 1800s, I can't imagine what that would have done. Especially like when they found trap doors in the floor. Yep. And, and then all the stuff in the basement. And yeah, all that. Ugh. Just gives me the heebie jeebies, you know? Yeah. Ugh. In 1895, in October, in Philadelphia, he was charged and tried and found guilty and sentenced to hanging for the Petizel murders. While in prison is when he wrote his confession, and he sold it to Hearst for $7,500. Now- We already know that's a lot of money today. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. So in his confession, he confesses to 27 murders and six attempted murders. However, much of this is disputed as some of those victims were found to be alive. For instance, the couple that Holmes obtained the drugstore from was alive and well. They hadn't disappeared. His telling of events was also in contradiction to some of the facts. So during this time, many people speculated how Holmes had killed his victims. Nine deaths were more or less connected to Holmes from the physical evidence. And aside from his confession, some estimated 100 to 200 people, but there was no physical evidence to support it, which leads experts to believe that it was likely only the nine, maybe a few more. Um, you know, like there were the rumors of his childhood and everything. Famously, Holmes wrote in his confession, and this is a quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. And That's a um, very interesting take there, but all right, weird flex, but okay. Yeah, this actually does kind of tie in. There is a book called The Devil in the White City about Holmes, which I have not finished, but it's good. 
Um, so on May 7th, 1896, Holmes was hanged. He was buried in an unmarked grave and per his request was buried more deeply than conventional and had concrete poured over his casket to prevent it from being opened by grave robbers. I mean, he has a point. You know someone's going to do that to be like, hey, I got a piece of H.H. Holmes clothing that he was buried in. Five million dollars. Or I got a piece of H.H. Holmes. That too, but you know, I was going something more likely that you could, you know, pass off on eBay, but... Well, I mean, back then, he probably wasn't even thinking about that. He was thinking about the fact that he was a grave robber himself, and people would probably want retribution. Fair enough. You know, I didn't think about that. My mind immediately went to, hey, let's auction off this man's stuff. (laughs) Much of his life has been heavily fictionalized. The case has become grander than it ever could have been. There is a lot that yellow journalism has added to this as well. There is no evidence that he killed hundreds of people. Additionally, the floor plans that are publicly known are possibly not even correct. They were made up by journalists to print the paper. They had some accounts of what it was like, and then they just kind of made a blueprint that wasn't Yeah, this real. is this is about right. It's close enough. For all we know, the murder castle could have been relatively normal, and they were just so focused on these laundry chutes that he used to drop the people down to the basement that it grew and grew and grew. And sounded more elaborate than it was. Yeah. So in reality, the third floor was never finished, and it was primarily built on swindling more money from investors. As far as we know, no surviving blueprints to represent the actual layout of the building exist. There had been plans to open up his home as a tourist attraction. However, in August of 1895, it was burnt through arson and the building was later torn down for a post office in 1938. That's what I was going to ask if like, it would have been interesting had they rebuilt it, how it was originally laid out just for the sake of like museum. Yeah. Or even if there were photographs or just some sort of yeah, something, something that to... you could see what the actual thing looked like. Yeah. Holmes was compared to the Benders, and later when Belle Gunness's crimes were revealed, she would be compared to H.H. Holmes. Many books and shows and movies have been made about his life, his crimes. There are tons of references to him, but a lot of them are reliant on the myths, not necessarily the reality. I do know there was a real, it's actually one of my favorite episodes of Supernatural. There is a myth about Holmes that he managed to escape his execution by buying off the prison officials. That, however, was finally laid to rest in 2017 when Holmes' great-great-grandson had his body exhumed and the body was confirmed to be H.H. Holmes. So he was hung and laid to rest in 1896. Now, this same grandson has a theory that Holmes may have been Jack the Ripper. I mean... So, back then, 
they didn't document travel. They didn't document a lot the way they do now. So it is possible that he went to London and committed those murders while he was there. There is a series called American Ripper that is based on his search to prove that H.H. Holmes committed those murders, but it's, you know, it hasn't been proven or disproven. There's no physical evidence to prove it. It can't be confirmed that Holmes was ever in London in his lifetime. But it is a very compelling theory. And, you know, the Ripper was very knowledgeable about anatomy. He was many of the things that Holmes was. However, Holmes never sliced and diced his victims in the States. So... Fair, yeah. I mean, I guess the timeline kind of would add up, so... The timeline would have added up. It's just there are discrepancies. You know, Jack the Ripper went after sex workers, uh, killed them out in the open. He did use knives and dissected his victims. Whereas Holmes... Holmes used people. He would, you know... Once he no longer had a use for them, he didn't need them anymore, he would just kill them and get rid of them. He did like to experiment on their bodies because he was fascinated with dissection and anatomy. But at the base of it, he was an exceedingly selfish man who had no empathy for others. And he, you know, he made up these confessions that may or may not have been true. You know, some of them were proven to be false because the people were still alive. So what he actually did and what he actually paid for are, you know, still kind of unknown and up in the air. That's interesting. Not creepy at all. I think it's a fascinating story. It's an absolutely fascinating story, especially if you start digging into the myths and the theories and the whispers and the ghost stories fair enough that was very interesting and totally not creepy at all no cracker's gonna have trouble sleeping tonight nah it's fine this is fine Fine. worry about it it's fine so next week like we said will be a cracko story and i would like to maybe Cracko, you can join me in this, but we do have merchandise available on the website, and each of us have gotten a piece. I got the vintage-style sporty t-shirt with the stripes on the sleeve. Cracko got the normal premium tee. Mine is, like, the comfiest shirt I own now. Same. I love it. I put that on, and I was like, yes, I I like this shirt. I I I need more like this. It's very soft. Uh, yeah, they're soft. I really like the quality of them. So if anybody wants to check it out, we have quite a bit up in the store. We, yeah, we can put a uh, little link out for that. Yeah. So uh, again, thank you guys as always for listening. We will be back next week with another story. And Cracko, you want to take it away? Cracko away. Okay, bye. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> <laughs>